if you have a Bible with you, go ahead and turn to Ephesians chapter 3. Uh, as I said in our opening session, what I want to do for uh, the time that we have ahead of us is really just kind of dwell in an, an um, exposition of, uh, of the gospel as it pertains to discipleship and community. So we're going to spend a couple of sessions on discipleship, and that'll kind of dovetail into a fi- our final session, which will be focusing on really how we experience a breakthrough in Christian community. Uh, so while you're finding Ephesians chapter 3, let me just uh, tell you a little story to kind of set some things up. Uh, once upon a time, this is a bedtime story, this is good for post-lunch session. Once upon a time, people were kind and sweet to each other. They lived in perfect harmony and peace. They were completely open with each other and vulnerable with each other. There were no hindrances or obstacles to vital, life-giving, and flourishing relationships. Once upon a time, people, uh, uh, people were perfectly in sync with each other and lived wholly in a spirit of unity. Now, there were only two people in existence at the time, but they had a really good deal going. Um, it, it lasted all of one chapter in the Bible. And then in Genesis chapter 3, the only two people in the world, of course, wreck everything. Just four chapters into the Bible, when there's still just one family in existence in the world, we see our first murder. By chapter 6, God says all of mankind is corrupt. And he sends a flood to kill everyone but one family. Effectively setting a reset on humanity. Just three chapters later, just the ninth chapter of the Bible, that family indulges in shameful behavior and is torn in two. And so it goes, as the human experiment at getting along in the world progresses, we're not even halfway through the first book of the Bible, and we have fully embraced the curse that is pronounced upon our earliest disobedience. So from the get-go and thereafter, we have worked exceptionally hard at becoming experts in enmity with each other. And in the 11th chapter of the Bible, we find the curious historical account of the Tower of Babel, which is ostensibly a work of great unity. This is to demonstrate the unity of mankind and the industriousness of mankind. People working together to construct a great monument to heaven. Finally, we've gotten our act together, and we're working together as a team. It's, it's, it's every utopian's dream, but the Lord is not pleased, is he? Why? Well, verse 4 in Genesis 11 tells us that the people have come together to make a name for themselves. And the Lord had actually commanded them to spread out and fill the earth and take dominion, to be on mission, as it were. But they decided to disobey that command, and they build a silo as a testimony to their own power and resourcefulness. Consequently, the Lord confuses them in their language. They can't understand each other, and therefore they can't work together. And the fallout from those first 11 chapters of the Bible then become increasingly severe and increasingly awful throughout the rest of the Old Testament. There are family rifts that turn into tribal conflicts. There are tribal conflicts that turn into generational curses. Nations rise and fall and rise again and fall again. And the people of God, Israel, are beset on all sides by oppression. They are beset from within by idolatry, conflict. And then we get to the New Testament. And the Son of God comes and He preaches peace and unity through repentance of sin and belief in Himself. Essentially this, stop trying to make a name for yourself 
and instead seek to make my name great. And in Acts chapter 2, after the resurrected Jesus has ascended, the Holy Spirit comes to bless those who have repented and believed in Jesus, and something remarkable happens. As the church is first formed through the good news of Jesus, this new body of believers, a, a, a great reset, a fresh start for a new people of God in a world of self-interest and conflict, the Holy Spirit descends and marks these believers with something like tongues of fire. And people who previously could not understand each other suddenly did. Acts chapter 2, verse 7, we can hear in our native language. So Pentecost becomes the great unbabbling of Babel. Where there was division and confusion, now there is unity and understanding. Where there was conflict between humans centered on themselves, now there is peace between humans who are centered on Christ and His gospel. And just two chapters later, in Acts chapter 4, we read this about the early church. Now the entire group of those who believed were of one heart and mind, and no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but instead they held everything in common. And they lived happily ever after. Just kidding, it lasted about eight seconds. <laughs> By the very next chapter, the Lord strikes dead two of the members of the church for dishonesty and withholding money. And by the chapter after that, Acts chapter 6, we see our first glimpse of an ethnic rift in the church as the Greek believers accuse the Jewish believers of neglecting Greek widows with the benevolence fund. And the church has been trying to get back to Genesis 2 and Acts chapter 2 ever since. The question essentially is this, how do you become an Acts chapter 2 church with Acts chapter 6 problems? And this is something that Paul addresses continually through all of his letters to the churches, but is perhaps seen most keenly in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 3, beginning in verse 14, and we're going to read to verse 21. Hear the word of the Lord. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all of the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let me um, say a, a blessing for us and ask the Lord to uh, help us in these uh, sessions. He Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have not given us the silent treatment, that you have not left us to our own devices. We thank you for this precious truth. Help us to um, receive it deep in our hearts, not just in our minds intellectually, but that we would be transformed by what is happening in our minds, the renewal that is occurring there, that our, that our very souls would be shaped by your good news, that we would be conformed more and more to the image of your Son, even by this very hearing of your word this afternoon. We know that you can do this, so we ask that your Holy Spirit would be about that business. Uh, as, as, as humbly but as audaciously as we can ask, we ask for that uh, 
bold request. And we pray all these things in the name of your Son. Amen. Um, Ephesus was uh, the third largest city in the Roman Empire. And because there are lots of people being sort of addressed or, or um, uh, in mind, in the context of, of, of this letter, or the audience of this letter, um, the letter to Ephesians is kind of a generalized letter. There's not, as far as we know, a specific sort of cause or circumstance or occasion that prompts Paul to write this. And it was likely that this letter was meant to be read outside of that church and become, um, as I said, kind of a generalized uh, missive to those uh, um, early believers. Uh, but Ephesus is kind of a cosmopolitan place. It's a, it's a commercial center. And so there's lots of people there who are intent on making a name for themselves, really kind of in the, in the Babel-esque sense. And that potential then, of course, is, is possible in the church as well, even among early converts. And it's certainly uh, um, potential for us as well that we would have a, a, a deep-rooted self-interest that begins to crowd out our understanding of what it means to be humbled, what it means to receive the strength of God in the midst of our weakness. So Paul's words on unity here are really um, relevant, not just for um, this context, uh, you know, for that context, but for our context as well. We are faced, like the, the early church, with forces outside of us that tempt us and try us, we are, are, are faced with lures from within the church, within our own communities, in fact, of, of um, idols and different even kinds of worldliness that masquerades as religion that would tempt to sort of bait us. The church is, in every age, constantly tempted by the spirit of the age. And so faced with forces inside that kind of stifle our harmony with each other, and has that not occurred over the last year and a half in, in Western evangelicalism, particularly in American evangelicalism, our harmony with each other you know, um, has been stifled tremendously. The sort of drift that we face as well towards insular thinking or self-interested attitudes, we are constantly threatened by division. And so every church faces this question, will we embrace the spirit of Babel or will we embrace the spirit of Pentecost? And the reservoir of our affections is constantly being stirred for rivals of Jesus even in our experience of church. We value our comfort. We value our preferences. We value our control, our influence, or our power. We value those things over and against our Lord who calls us to self-sacrifice in love for others. What is the purpose of discipleship? That's the aim of this first talk. What is the purpose of discipleship? Well, Paul, in this passage, is recentering, rerooting us in the source of the true love that empowers the kind of sacrifice necessary. Only Christ can fuel the kind of mutual affection in a church that makes it designed, uh, 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 that makes it what it's designed to be. And so we see here that the work of discipleship, the very identity of being a disciple, is about knowing the love of God. Discipleship is basically fellowship of Jesus. And discipling is about pointing people to Jesus. Why? Not simply so that they can become religious, but so that they can be changed. So I want to share with you three things about discipleship from this passage. The first one is this. Discipleship is about transformation. Discipleship is about transformation. 
Now, when I was a kid, as I told you, growing up in church, going to church, we had something that we called discipleship training. So if you wanted to be trained as a disciple, and what it usually meant was showing up to a special class where you sat in rows and you heard someone like me stand up in front of everybody and, and give a lesson, give some sort of, give some sort of teaching. And, and, and so you'd get one lesson and then you would move on. And, and uh, you know, maybe there's some sort of goal in mind. You get a certificate of some kind, something like that. I know Porter Brook has something like that for you guys as well. And the, the, the subtle tendency in, in identifying or defining discipleship that way is that we begin to equate discipleship simply with knowing more information, which is where it begins, of course, but that is not the whole or the substance of real discipleship. Knowing more about God's Word and learning new things is necessary for growth in Christ, it's not optional, but it's very easy to assume that just because someone has passed a test, just because they know the information, that they're growing spiritually. This is something that um, I say to my seminary students um, all the time, which is to say, you read all the things that I assign you to read, and uh, um, you, know, you read them well, you can get a good grade in this class. That does not prepare you to be a good pastor. How you let this information shape your heart how it um, uh, uh, drives you to follow Christ in affectionate ways, that is what will prepare you to be a good pastor. That you steward the information towards your affections for Jesus. That's the preparation that we need. So discipleship training is not simply about information, it's about transformation. We aren't um, just making smarter people, we're making new people. We're making new people. Verse 16 strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being. Now you're beginning to see how some of the stuff we talked about this morning, some of those implications are beginning to kind of filter their way in through our thinking on all these different things. What is being affected? The inner being. This is not something that comes about purely through education. It can start there. It's not mindless. But our efforts of discipleship must be about experiencing the supernatural power of God. What I love about the passage is that it's, it's essentially a prayer. And we're going to talk about prayer a little bit more in the next session as well. But he, he bows his knee in verse 14. Right? Prayer exists because the power that we need is outside of ourselves. This is why we pray. There are things that God knows that we don't know. There's things that God has that we don't have. There's power that, that God uh, um, contains that, that we need or, or, or wisdom that He contains that we need, that we desire. There's something um, in the acknowledgement of prayer where we're basically saying, you're God and I'm not. So what does it mean when we're not in prayer? If we are prayerless, aren't we essentially in some way saying, I'm sufficient, and in some way saying, I'm, I am God. Even if I don't know the answer, even if I don't have the strength, I can get it. I can figure it out. And so Paul is sort of couching this, this entire discussion in the context of a prayer. It's in the form of a prayer. And so it's a reminder to us that Christianity is fundamentally supernatural. We are dealing with power from on high. We are dealing with power from heaven. Power placed into every believer by the indwelling Spirit of God who is constantly conforming us to the image of Christ. It can't simply be about knowing more theology. 
the purpose of discipleship must be, verse 19, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That surpasses knowledge. In his little book, uh, uh, Life Together, Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, we meet each other as bringers of the gospel. And he says something really kind of peculiar, something that, that, that didn't make a whole lot of sense to me the first time I read it, but has really stuck with me, and I've found to be experientially true. He says, the gospel in my brother is stronger than the gospel in me. And the gospel in me is stronger than the gospel in my brother. Which doesn't sound like it makes any sense. It just sounds like he just contradicted himself. But essentially what he's saying is, the gospel is meant to be proclaimed, shared, spoken. And so we meet each other then to remind each other of where the power comes from. Not inside of you and not inside of me, but from on high. We meet each other as bringers, heralders, proclaimers of the good news. The word of comfort is designed to be spoken. The gospel is meant to be heralded. We aren't just getting together to trade religious pats on the back. So church cannot be one more enterprise simply for inspiration or for cloning doctrinaires or for making a name for ourselves. God is building the church to make a name for Himself that we might through our character and covenanting with each other demonstrate His almighty presence and the goodness of grace. To know the love of Christ, as Paul says, that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. I just think about that language for a moment. Like the, the, the passage this morning from 1 Peter that was shared during the worship time. That you might be a partaker of the divine nature. You ever think about that? It's not simply that we would be smarter or more religious, but that we would actually share in the goodness of God. That we would be united to Him, hidden with Christ inside of Him, as Paul says in Colossians. He's not withholding from us. And He wants us to know something far better and far greater than simply being theology nerds. He wants us to know this fullness and to be filled with this fullness. Paul positions the fullness of God, Father in verse 14, Spirit in verse 16, Son in verse 17. And he positions this fullness, the Trinitarian fullness, at the center of church life because it is the Trinity that shapes the gospel. And it's the Trinity that brings us into church life. So the Father commissions the work the Son accomplishes the work, and the Spirit applies the work. The good news of Jesus itself has a Trinitarian shape to it. The fullness of God is brought to bear on our transformation. And in other words, there's not a bit of Him held back from us. All divine hands are on deck. We're saved by the entirety of the one true God. And the fullness of God is brought to bear on our transformation and so it must be God's work or we won't be transformed. So whatever your agenda or your intention in leading a church or being in leadership in a church or, or even going to church, we need to remember that being incorporated into the body of Christ where His glory is explicitly the point of everything was not our idea. Your church plant was not your idea. 
And people gather together in the world for all kinds of things. School and concerts and sporting events, all all sorts of things. But the church exists for the glory of God. The church exists for the glory of God made manifest in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's His blood that's painted on those doors that we walk through. It's His blood that marks the entrance. We didn't get into church by our cleverness or by our intellect or by our social currency. And we definitely didn't get in by our good work. We get in because He alone is worthy. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. And we stand there together on the same ground. Our participation in church is wasted if it could be explained by anything other than the gospel. If people outside could look at our churches and say, it makes total sense why those people are getting together. They share the same politics. They share the same socioeconomic background. They share the same skin color. They share the same whatever. That makes total sense. That's why everybody else gathers. But if they could look at our churches and say, I have no idea why these people are in each other's lives. There must be something to this grace thing. There must be something to this good news of the kingdom thing. Would our churches be living apologetics for the reality of God and for the reality of His gospel? We get together to spur one another on to behold the glory of Christ. And helping each other behold the glory of Christ is helping each other change. You remember this morning, I shared with you 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. It's, it's by beholding the glory of Christ that we are transformed from one degree of glory to another into the same likeness. And this leads to our second point. Transformation is about Christ-likeness. Transformation is about Christ-likeness. Number one, discipleship is about transformation. Secondly, transformation is about Christ-likeness. Reflecting His image from our own. Now, this is how Paul puts it in Romans chapter 8. In verse 29, he says, For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. Whatever you love about predestination, those of you who love it, maybe some of you don't, but for everybody who loves predestination and Calvinism and all that kind of thing, remember that the whole point is that we would be conformed to the image of Christ. Not that we would be great leaders or smart leaders or you know, uh, you know, theological eggheads or even know a whole lot about the Bible, but that, that we would be more like Jesus. That's the whole point. That we would be more like the one who saved us. So we're not just working at becoming better versions of ourselves. We are working at embracing the Spirit's power and conforming us to the image of the Son of God. Now this is how Paul puts it here, verse 17. Christ is dwelling in our hearts through faith. We really can we really can enjoy communion with Christ because of our union with Christ. He has united us to him mystically, spiritually. He has hidden us with himself in the fullness of God. We have been crucified with him and raised with him. And even this very moment, if you are in Christ, you are seated with him in the heavenly places, it says. 
Like you're here this morning or this afternoon. You're, you're here, but in a, in a spiritual sense, you're also there. You're just waiting for yourself to show up. <laughs> One of these days you're going to get there and you're going to be there. And you're going to say, I'm so glad you're here. We can finally be a whole person. <laughs> finally. Won't that day be great? So discipleship, helping each other see and know Jesus, is really helping each other become more like Jesus. Which is very difficult to do from a distance. There's an exercise that I um, conduct with my ministry students where I ask them, um, we go around the room and I, and I say, what's the best sermon you ever heard? Tell me what's the best sermon you ever heard. And uh, if we did that, you know, we could do that here probably. And the majority of them, if not all of them, there's been class periods where, where all of them give us similar answers. Sometimes uh, um, you know, there's some variety. But by and large, the sermons they name are from people they've never met. They'll say, the best sermon I ever heard was you know, uh, John Piper at you know, Passion 98 or something, you know, something like that. Um, or you know, TGC, Tim Keller talking about such and such. Or Matt Chandler at the whatever... There's some celebrity preacher or just somebody that they heard. Every now and then somebody says, my preacher or something, and I, don't, I halfway don't believe them. You know? um, they just know, like they see where the trajectory is going, and they're like, I'm going to be different. You know? uh, but maybe it was the best sermon. I don't know. But So by and large, what people say is some, somebody they don't know preached a sermon at some event or something as best sermon I ever heard, or they heard it online or something. Then I say, let's go around the room. Tell me the person who's made the... Had, made the biggest impact on your life spiritually? Who's had the single biggest impact on your life spiritually? Nobody ever says somebody they never met. They all say, like, my mom, or my Sunday school teacher, or my brother, or my college roommate, or somebody who at some point took them aside and said, I'm going to study the Bible with you, or I'm going to tell you about Jesus, or we're going to work through this you know, John Stott book together, or why don't you come to church with me? There's somebody who created proximity and investment. Those are the people who have the biggest spiritual impact on their lives. What does that tell us? It tells us that Christ takes up residence in our hearts, and the intimacy in that relationship is born very often, or fostered, I guess I should say, fostered by an intimacy with other people for whom Christ has taken up residence. Um, I, I look back at it and, and I think, yeah, if somebody asked me what was the best sermon I ever heard, I probably would go to some you know, conference talk that I had heard. But when someone asked me, who has impacted you the most spiritually? I think of um, my youth pastor when I was in the eighth and ninth grade. His name was Chris Trent. And uh, for this reason in particular, Chris Trent uh, when I, um, as an eighth grader, said, I think God's calling me to be a pastor. <laughs> he didn't say, you're in, eighth, you're in junior high school. <laughs> you don't know anything, <laughs> which would have been true. I didn't know anything. But he said, all right, you come with me. And I started hanging out with Chris, and we would go downtown Albuquerque, New Mexico to do evangelism at McDonald's, and it was the scariest thing I'd ever done in my entire life. But I was with Chris. So I was going to be Okay. And Chris would say, come over to our house, we're going to have a dinner. And so he and his wife and his seven kids would be around this huge table. And I would get to see what a Christian dad and Christian husband were like. And, and, and Chris would say, come with me, I'm going to be you know, doing some things with the high schoolers, and, and I just want you to tag along. And, and so I felt like a big guy, I got to hang out with the high school students. And, uh, and it was all about 
shadowing Chris. He took me seriously and, and, and opened up space for me to be close and just kind of walk around in his, in his wake. I think of a guy by the name of Mike Ayers, who was my youth pastor in high school and later became um, my uh, pastor as he planted a church and I went to be uh, the student pastor at his church. And it was a similar thing. I, you know, Mike would just open up his office. He, he would work late often and I could just go hang out in the office and we wouldn't even have to be in conversation. But just being close, just being in the same room meant so much to me. And he would invite me over to the home and he would you know, take me out on his errands. I think of a guy by the name of David McLemore, who was one of the first guys that I discipled um, uh, under the sort of gospel-centered thing when I underwent my sort of gospel-centered conversion and later was invited to be a part of this young adult ministry. And there was about 12 people who were brought onto this leadership team for an, a ministry that didn't even exist yet. And over time, what happened was this sort of natural division. It wasn't really hostile. It was just philosophically we divided it between people who wanted to do what I thought we should do and people who did not want to do what Jared thought we should do. And David and his girlfriend, Sarah, uh, were among the people who think, there's something to this gospel stuff. And they had only been Christians for about a year or so. So my wife and I began to invest in them, and I you know, uh, uh, performed their wedding and um, he became, in, in a way, my Titus and my Timothy. But then over the years, the roles have really reversed. When we left Nashville, uh, we left our church plant to go pastor a church. I was pastoring a church in, in, in Vermont. Um, David, who was on the leadership team of, of our church plant, uh, eventually um, he and his wife started, a, uh, uh, they joined Emmanuel Church, which, uh, which was planted by Ray Ortland. And, and David became an elder there, and then uh, David was sent out, and he's uh, a part of an 89 church plant in Franklin, Tennessee now. And I'll call him up and just say, I need advice. <laughs> um, the, the student has become the teacher in a lot of ways. In fact, I remember I was going through a very difficult time at, uh, in my church in Vermont and was really struggling, and so I called Ray, who uh, has been a great mentor to me, and I just sort of explained the situation, something that I had done, um, which was open to interpretation. I walked out of a meeting, basically. Um, I felt kind of bullied and, and, and insulted, and uh, I made some remarks, and I walked out, and I, I told Ray about this. And, uh, and Ray said, Jared, you shouldn't have done that, which was like putting a knife in my, in my heart. Um, Jared, you shouldn't have done that, because then it just becomes about who's more hurt and blah, blah, blah. blah. So, then I, so then I called David, and I said, man, this is what Ray said. Ray was telling me how I shouldn't have done that and everything. And, and David goes, Jared, you know Ray's not right about everything, right? And it was, it was so wise that he said that because Ray had become like Yoda, you know, to me. And here was David actually being Yoda to me. And I just thought, I remember when you and your girlfriend were sitting on the couch and, I mean, y'all were brand new. You didn't know anything. And, and here I am calling you up just for comfort and advice. Well, that relationship came about through such closeness and, and openness and confession. David knows the worst things about me. He knows my deepest, darkest secrets. What is happening in this, in this kind of discipleship? It's, it's the language of family. It's not, just, it's not just proximity. It's family, where the gospel takes not just strangers and makes them friends. The gospel takes enemies and makes them brothers and sisters. That's how transformative grace is. Back in Romans 8.29, we're conformed to the image of Christ 
that the Son might be the first among many brothers, it says. And then here in Ephesians 3, Paul mentions every family being named from God. So relational closeness is key to discipleship. Sometimes it's called life on life, right? Discipleship. Because we are more family than we are organization. The blood has made us one. In Romans 15, Paul puts it this way, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. Now this raises the question for me, how exactly did Christ welcome me? What does it look like for for Christ to have welcomed me? I start thinking of, of, of words like sacrifice and, and affection. When I'm, when I'm talking to Jesus, he's not looking over his shoulder for somebody more important. He's not checking his watch. He's not trying to decide if I'm an asset to the organization, if I'm worth spending time with. He gave his life for me. I am worth him spending time with me for sure. Well, if that's how Christ has welcomed us, and Paul says, welcome one another the same way, what does that mean for our relational closeness, for our disposition towards our brothers and sisters? Well, this is only possible through Christ's likeness. Why? Because the church is made up of sinners. Sinners who are reconciled to each other by the gospel. Sinners who have lots of reasons for that not to be the case. And only Christ loves sinners. Only Christ died for the ungodly. Christ-likeness is the way. And Christ-likeness is the point. And in the end, what we are called to enact and embody is the love that is sourced in and that emanates from God's very self. From the fullness of God, as Paul says. The love that we are called to and the love that we get to enjoy is a reflection of God's love for His own Son. And pursuing Christ's likeness is the supernatural result of even that love. Jonathan Lehman in his book, The Rule of Love, says, the fire of the Father's affection for the Son is so great that He wants hundreds of millions of faces to look just like Jesus' face. In other words, the Father loves the Son so much, He wants the church, He wants all of us to look like the Son. But what's really interesting too about this is that I said early on, like, to, you know, to be a disciple is not just simply to you know, be a better version of yourself, but to be conformed to Christ's likeness. The wonder, the wonderful irony of the gospel is that the more like Christ we become, the more like our true selves we become. So we're not becoming clones of each other. As each of us becomes more like Jesus, we're also becoming more ourselves. And I don't know, some of you um, older saints maybe you know, can testify to this. I find that as I get older, um, you know, there's something that comes with age where you just stop caring about what people think about you a little bit more. I think part of that's just the age thing. But a lot of it is just walking with Jesus. And you become a lot more comfortable in your own skin. Because the more time you spend with Jesus, the more comfortability you have. Because you realize, if He's for me, who can be against me? His favor is given to me totally. Never withheld. Never begrudgingly. Discipleship is about transformation, and transformation is about Christ-likeness. And thirdly and finally, Christ-likeness is about love. Christ-likeness is about love. This is the purpose of discipleship, love. Because we were made in the image of the God who is love, we have been looking for love ever since the fall, which brought corruption to that image. 
So it's sin, of course, that makes experiencing this love feel so impossible. And so what happens is we default towards law and we engage in, in, in a kind of relational legalism, right? So what does relational legalism look like? It's basically, I will love you or give favor to you so long as you somehow please me, meet the standard, or so long as you give love to me. It's a transactional thing. You have to earn credit with me. You have to earn my love. Now, none of us would say that we do that, but that's generally the, the, default, you know, the default mode of our operations. Someone treats us poorly. It's just, it's just instinct. We, we go up on guard. I'm not, I'm not going to respond with love to them. They don't love me. It's, it's a transactional thing. And it's completely understandable. But this is part of being in a fallen world, sort of living under the curse. So how do we emerge from this? If I'm loving you insofar as you satisfy my desires or my preferences or my standards, which isn't love at all, by the way. If you look at 1 Corinthians 13, love keeps no record of wrongs. Love believes all things, hopes all things. So that's not love at all. How do we emerge from this? How can we finally really know love? Paul Miller in his book, A Loving Life, says, you endure the weight of love by being rooted in God. By being rooted in God. Because it's a weighty thing. It's a difficult thing, isn't it? To love someone who doesn't love you back. My wife knew this for many years, as she loved me despite my sin and my harsh treatment. Then I got a taste of it when I was finally loving her with no hope of return. I, I knew any day she could say, this, that's it, I want you out of the house. And that day finally did come, actually. So for a year, loving, serving my wife without any, any hope of reciprocity, I had this little taste. This is what it might have been like for Jesus to love me. That at the end of the day, he's, he could have said, well, this is such a waste of time. What are you doing? This guy will, will never be obedient. All this love I'm pouring out for him, for this, he could have said that at any point. And, and, and been right. This is what Paul says, verse 17. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in, in love may have strength. Oh, we need that. Strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. The purpose of discipleship is love. The mandate for discipleship is the Great Commission. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. What has He commanded us? A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. I mean, the church is called the body of Christ for a reason. We are... We are being built together to reflect corporately what we are each being conformed to individually. The church exists to make Jesus look big. And we accomplish this by being the people who are known for love. 
My friend Ray says, the beauty of love is the crown of a well-taught church. How do you know the church is taught well? Not that they hold, know a whole bunch of stuff, but that they are crowned with the beauty of love. To be filled with the fullness of God is to be loved and to give love. And God's very self is love, John tells us. God is a fountain of love. With the Trinity enjoying an eternal mutuality of love within the Godhead self. And this love must overflow. Perhaps because none of the divine persons needs love. So the love must spill over the boundaries and and is willfully spilled into creation. This is obviously poetic language. But the intervention of God in creation is not just so our joy may be full, but so that the human's need for love would be filled. I think this is the deepest need of every human being is to be loved. And this love is poured out in the incarnation. In climactic fashion, it is poured out in the blood of the cross. And it spills out of the empty tomb, brighter and pure, in fact, than the sunlight that spilled into the tomb when the stone was rolled away. More love came out than sun went in. To be swept up in this love in the gospel is the apex of human existence. There is not an accomplishment, there's not an experience that could be any greater than to know the love of God in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That's the tippity top. It doesn't get any better. The breadth and the length and the height and the depth. John puts it in 1 John chapter 3. This is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. And then in in 1 John chapter 4, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and His love is perfected in us. In essence, we make visible the reality of God and His love. And if God abides in us, Christ dwelling in our hearts through faith, we will love one another, not merely tolerate one another. That's what we get good at, usually. We tolerate each other. We put up with each other. No, Christ-likeness is about love. And because love, as I said before, has a face that can be seen, and love has a voice that can be heard, and love has arms that hug and hands that hold, because love is real and incarnate, and resurrected, and glorified, and reigning at the right hand of the Father, and because love always lives to intercede for us, and because Christ's love is fathoms deep, and you can't swim your way out of it, our love for our brothers and sisters ought to be in some way a prayerful response to this height and length and depth and breadth. John Bunyan in All Loves Excelling says, We're all the saints on earth and all the saints in heaven to contribute all that they know of this love of Christ and to put it into one sum of knowledge, they would greatly come short of knowing the utmost of His love. If you took everything that we ever knew about love and put it all together, it it would be nothing compared to the love that is real in Christ. In fact, the very reason that He makes us more like Himself is because He loves us. 
my prayer for you is that you know this more than academically. All of you know God loves you. Do you experience the love of God? I'll, I'll say, do you feel the love of God? And we're not supposed to talk about feelings. But. When you're alone and despondent and it's the wee hours of the morning, in the middle of the night, and you're sitting at that kitchen table and, you, and, and your face is in your hands, and you're not sure how you're going to go on. You're overcome with fear, maybe, or maybe shame, or guilt, or anxiety. And you hear footsteps. And you look up and walking right into that dim light in the kitchen is Jesus. And you look up at him. What's the look on his face? That makes all the difference in the world, what you see on his face. I hope you see the look of love. Many of us did not grow up in, in you know, hearing about a Jesus who would look at us with love that way. You wake up into his delight. You're the apple of his eye. Did you know that? That's, that, that's from the Bible. That's a biblical phrase. You are rooted and grounded in love. And the church exists to be a reminder of this. To testify to the reality of this. That we don't see or hear him or hold him yet. But he is holding us. And we can get a taste of that day when we know as we are known this day in our churches if we will earnestly love each other. The purpose of discipleship is love. What do we say in response to these things? Now to him who is able, verse 20, to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church, and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let me pray and we'll, we'll take a short break. Heavenly Father, you are good and you do good. I thank you for the love that you give us. I, yes, I, I want to feel it more and more. I want to feel your love like I, I feel sunlight on my face in the morning when I step outside. Cool water in my mouth when I'm, when I'm parched and thirsty and hot. The blanket at night when I'm cold and I'm cuddling up. All of these great gifts you give us just pale reflections of what it means to know the comfort of your grace. We, we, we believe, Heavenly Father, that, that this is what changes us, empowers us, helps us in our everyday life and, and in our relationships with others and in our endeavors with our churches. So we ask that you would help us by the power of your Spirit, 
for the uh, uh, glory of your Son and in his name. Help us to see the all-conquering resurrection kind of love that you've given us. It's in your Son's name that we pray these things. Amen. Amen.